Let us all listen to what God has to say to us from Romans 12 today. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sue. Good morning, everyone. My name's Sam. I'm the pastor of our uni church congregation. Uh, me and my family are members here at 10 as well. It's wonderful to be opening God's word with you this morning. Things that I love. I love slow-cooked beef sticky ribs in soy sauce. I love the Carlton Football Club, even when they miss finals, even when they break my heart. I love zombie movies, and I love my wife and my daughters. We have some issues with the way we use that word, love, right? Those loves are not equivalent loves, though I really do love sticky ribs a lot. But we use the same word for each of those things, love. It's that perhaps most overused, perhaps most misunderstood word in our English language, I think. I remember wanting to tell Ronnie for the first time that I loved her, but finding it so daunting to say those three little words that eventually she got fed up waiting for me to say it and said it to me first. And we we love love. Right? Every culture, every time, every era, humans love love. Many, maybe most of our most famous songs are love songs. Many of our most famous plays and books and films are love stories. Great feats of history 
great construction projects have been acts of love. But we're confused about that word. But scripture has has a much clearer, stronger, more robust way of talking about love. This might be familiar to some of us, might be new to some of us. Scripture uses four words for love, each with quite a different meaning that would much more helpfully uh, talk about what we mean to say. Maybe you've read C.S. Lewis' famous book, The Four Loves, or explored this idea before. If you have, if you've read that book, or if you've uh, come across the way that the Bible talks about love, can you tell me, this is a, a moment for you to be brave and to call out, can you tell me any of the biblical words for love? I'm hearing a garpe. I think I heard Storge down here. Is that right? Well done. That's the one that people seem to never get. <laughs> uh, yes. Yep. Close. That's, yep. Yep. Very nice. What was that? Sorry? Yes. Thank you. So there's, there's, there's four words that the Bible, the New Testament uses uh, to talk about love. There's philia that we heard there, which is kind of friendship love, the kind of devotion that we show to friends uh, in our lives. There's storge, which is uh, kind of instinctive affection, like a parent might feel for their, for their child. Uh, interestingly, the, the word that we see in verse 10 in our passage, have a look in front of you, we'll come to it a bit later, is, is a compound of those two types of love, philia and storge. Philostorgus is the word, combining the feeling of affection with the bond of friendship. A third type of love in the New Testament is eros, uh, that we get the word like erotic from, which is romantic love. Uh, and fourth is agape, the, the highest form of love. It's the love which God is described as showing us. Agape love is pure, it's deliberate, it's sacrificial, it's enduring. The New Testament writers are really deliberate, really thoughtful about when they use that word for love. It's like they want this particular word agape to to uniquely mark out the love which God shows us and calls us to show as his followers. It's this kind of love that should mark us out as followers of Jesus. Jesus himself in John 13, he said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you Agape, love one another. It's love after the pattern of God's love and it's the central driver of the Christian life. What does Jesus say is the greatest commandment when someone asks him? Agape, the Lord your God, with all your heart and soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. Agape, love your neighbour as yourself. Love is the central idea here in Romans chapter 12. Our passage today is what's called a a paranesis passage, which is, uh, maybe you felt this as we read it, a pattern which we see in various places throughout the New Testament, which means counsel or exhortation or instruction. Here and in some particular passages, it looks like this long string of kind of exhortations or encouragements or or moral calls. It can be quite a diverse set of instructions. 
kind of goes bang, 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 do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Here we have 13 verses and within those 13 verses there are no less than 30 commands. Lots of instructions, right? lots of things to do, lots of things not to do. But as we will see, as we explore it together, this is far from a kind of legalistic agenda of rules to be enforced, but rather a vision for a transformed life of discipleship to Jesus, a vision for gospel-shaped ethics and lived experience. Because it's such a kind of machine gun of of instructions, because there are 30 commands here, we won't be able to dig into each one as much as we might like, but what we'll do is we'll, we'll kind of gather together the main themes that we see and we'll see how they're expressed in some kind of real life, real experience examples. Because for passages like this one, these paranesis passages, it can sometimes feel a bit difficult to know how they hold together. Maybe you felt this as we read it. What's, what's the unity through this passage? Are they just like a stream of consciousness from an apostle who's been writing for too long without having a break? But this passage gives us the central and organising idea right there up the top, as we saw in our reading. Paul's being kind to us, he's making it easy for us. Have a look at verse 9 in your Bible or in the handout if you've got it there in front of you. Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. If this passage is about love, that's what we are going to learn about love. It must be sincere. That word means unhypocritical, without a mask, without pretense. Friends of mine taught their kids uh, good table manners and they especially prepared them for the scenario where you go to someone else's house for a meal uh, and you need to interact in that kind of social environment. And they trained their kids to say thank you very much for dinner and then to describe which part of the meal they loved the most. It's very good training uh, that these parents gave. And so armed with this training, their eldest kid uh, at the end of a meal at a friend's house proclaimed to the table, thank you very much for dinner, I especially love the water. (laughs) Sometimes love is not totally sincere, right? But love after the pattern of God's love is sincere, It's, it's genuine, it's true, it's real. And it changes the way that we do things. So let's look at two areas of life where this sincere love is expressed, where it's it's lived out by followers of Jesus. First, we're going to look at how it's lived out in our relationships with one another in church. Have a look with me from verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. What, What words 
might you use, you think, to kind of gather those instructions together? What, what themes stick out? What, what expression of sincere love do we see in those verses? I think it's a, a picture of, of wholehearted, sacrificial, spirit-driven love for the community of, of believers there. You see in verse 11 where it's translated, keep your spiritual fervour. Can you see that phrase there? That, that translation misses a pretty key metaphor in that phrase of being set on fire. We might more literally translate that phrase, be set on fire with the Spirit as you serve the Lord. I love that picture of sincere love. The one who loves their Christian brothers and sisters with agape love, love like God's love, burns. It's a fiery love. It's passion and commitment to one another. It's not half-hearted. It's not a hobby. It's not a community group. It's not two hours on a Sunday morning. It's comprehensive and pervasive and motivating. It's unpacked a bit more for us in verses 12 to 14 than what this kind of love looks like. When we love one another, set on fire by the Spirit, our love is patient, it's prayerful, it's practical. It's patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, it's practical in in sharing with one another and in hospitality. How might your love for the people in the room for the people who are your Christian brothers and sisters, grow more fiery? Well, by showing love that is patient, that is prayerful, that is practical. There's no room here for a kind of love that's just a a kind of an emotional experience, just a feeling, or a kind of love which is just convenient or low-cost We are urged to share with the Lord's people who are in need to practice hospitality. It's it's a radical vision for love. A few years ago, I spent uh, a few days on a retreat in uh, Tarawara Abbey in Healesville. Maybe a few people in the room have been there before. It's run by Benedictine monks who practice this particular brand of Benedictine hospitality which involves offering a room and a meal to anyone who asks without question and without cost. It was quite a radical experience for me to just be welcomed to the site, shown to my kind of little closet room, told what the meal times were, invited to join their worship services and then left to my own devices for days of prayer and rest. To be honest, at points it was a little concerning for me as I walked through the fields and nearly stepped on a tiger snake and realised they didn't even know my surname. <laughs> but it was quite a, a, a confronting and radical vision of hospitality, practical service that these monks showed. What might it look like for us to live out sincere love by showing practical care and hospitality to one another? You don't need to become a monk to do that. Hospitality looks like inviting people into our lives, our genuine lives, our sincere 
lives, like our homes, our relationships, not just the kind of polished up, vacuumed, smiling versions of ourselves, but the the true, the sometimes messy, the masks off version of ourselves. A former mentor of mine and, and his wife, their family, were so hospitable that their house became like a second home for a whole community of people who knew them. Ronnie and I were there at their house all the time, as were heaps of other young believers in our church and uh, in our friendship networks. The first time I went to their house, they had only just moved to Melbourne, only just moved to Australia. I'd only met them once, but they invited me around for dinner with their kids. They included me in their family devotion after dinner. They often had people living with them who needed a place to stay, and those people were invited into the rhythms of their life like I was. Eventually, you didn't even need to knock at the front door of their house anymore. You just could enter that house as if it was your own. We can show, show practical care, show hospitality to one another to live out this fiery, sincere love that we're called to. That's an unusual kind of love, right? It's unusual for us and it was certainly unusual in, in Rome as well. In this Greco-Roman context, philosophers of the day often associated virtue, what was good, with apatheia, where we get the word apathy from, a deliberate lack of involvement in the affairs or care for the affairs of other people. So this picture of all-in, passionate, fiery love for one another and involvement in one another's lives, it was and still is a very radical call. Of course it is, right? Do you remember how we started this big section of Romans last week, in Romans 12, verse 2? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Of course the kind of love that we're called to stands out. Of course it's radical. Of course it's different. The pattern of the world is apatheia. The pattern of the world is, is, is disconnection. It's not deep love and involvement in one another's lives. But the transformed life brought about by the gospel is sincere, fiery love for one another. Apathy is not God's vision for our lives. Neat passivism is not God's vision for our lives. And neither is, is frantic activity as if we were sovereign rather than God and it all depended on us, right? But here in Romans 12, the call is to reject the worldly pattern of, of apathy and instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds to be zealous, to keep our spiritual fervour, to be set on fire by the Spirit, to love one another. Well, that's, that's first, Paul's first kind of application of this principle of sincere love, I think. His encouragement to the Christian community together to be devoted to one another. And like we've seen, it's, it's full of these positive commands, one after another. Do this, do this, do that. This is what it looks like to live out sincere love and community together. And then in the middle of verse 16, have a look uh, at the passage in front of you. The grammar switches 
And it's a bit of an indication to us that Paul's moving from one application of sincere love to another. Have a look at verse 16 there with me as he, as he switches from positive to negative commands. So there's been all these positively phrased commands, do this, do this, do this, live in harmony with one another, and then he switches, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited, and he goes on and on. And this isn't an absolute pattern, an absolute switch. He does use a negative command back in verse 11. He will use a couple of positive commands in verse 17 and 18. But there's, there's quite a, a marked, quite a deliberate switch. And that helps us, I think, to follow him and to switch into this new realm of application for this principle of sincere love. So what is this new area of application? Revenge. My grandmother uh, is one of the most thrifty and, and generous and servant-hearted people that I know. She has been into financial austerity and sustainable living since long before it was cool. And she does that so that she can be financially generous to other people. And recently her bed broke. And because of who she is, because of what she's like, instead of heading off to Ikea, like you or I might have to buy a new bed for $79 that will break in another few years, she looked at the manufacturer's label on the bed, which she had bought in the 70s or 80s, and she rang them up to ask them about repairing the bed. And the, the guy at the company, the guy on the other end of the phone, quoted her $3,000 to fix the bed and tried to organise to complete the job before anyone else knew or could intervene. Luckily, my grand was too smart for him uh, and she spoke to us and we fixed the bed. But you, you should have heard the words, some of which came out of my mouth, many of more which stayed in my head when I heard about this. This, this bottom feeder trying to rip off my grand for $3,000. I spent days playing this scenario over in my head, fantasising plots of going to his factory to make him pay for even attempting that kind of thing on my grand, right? I thought of countless ways to extract the money from him that he tried to extract from her. I daydreamed a lot of revenge. We kind of love revenge as well, right? If we love love in our culture, I think we love revenge too. If love is one of the most common plot drivers for our great works, revenge must be one of the others, right? Like the Iliad, Hamlet, the Count of Monte Cristo, Wuthering Heights, Moby Dick. Revenge dominates movies and TV, including one of the biggest franchises of all time, right? That's even called The Avengers. And, and revenge, or the desire for revenge, it might not feel so pressing for some of us. It might not feel so close to our experience. But for others of us, it's consuming. Revenge against the person who hurt you. Revenge against your parents. Revenge after the breakdown of your marriage. Revenge after being cheated or ignored or ripped off in your work. Revenge after being taken advantage of. 
It's not clear exactly what situation of revenge Paul has in mind here in Romans 12. Possibly experiences that were particular to the lives of early believers in this kind of increasingly hostile Roman society, like losing livelihoods, being ostracised for their faith in Jesus, or possibly just the everyday situations that everyone experiences, like cheating in commerce or, or bullying or personal conflict. Whatever the situation that they faced, whatever situations we face, God calls us away from revenge. From verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As we saw with Paul's exhortation to love for one another, right? this teaching again stands in stark contrast to the prevailing philosophy of the Greco-Roman thought world. This goes against the pattern of the world. This is from Aristotle. He said, To take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For to retaliate is just, and that which is just is noble. And further, a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. And the Old Testament famously engages with this human instinct for revenge, right? It regulated and limited this instinct through the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth injunctions, which are there to ensure proportional punishment rather than escalating blood feuds. But even the Old Testament points beyond just limiting revenge. It points towards something else. It points towards forgiveness and grace. We see this here in in verse 19 and 20. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 32 and and Proverbs 25. Or hear these words from Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. Those are familiar words, aren't they? Jesus himself teaches, expands this, this model It's the ultimate antithesis of revenge. It's grace. Grace which goes above and beyond in responding to evil. Grace is more than resisting the urge for revenge. Grace is more even than forgiving the one who you might seek revenge over. Grace is responding to evil with blessing. It's Jesus dying on the cross and praying for the souls of the soldiers who nailed him up there. That's what we're called to here in Romans 12. Verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's participating with Christ. That is showing grace. So, I wonder, here's the question that's a really hard one for some of us. Is there anyone in your life 
that you long to have revenge over. If so, how might God in his word today be calling you to release that desire? To trust God's words here, that it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. Now, grace doesn't ignore or minimise the offence. Not for a moment. We can let go of revenge because of two things. Because Jesus himself died to achieve justice for sin and to set us the model of grace and because vengeance is the Lord's. As verse 19 puts it, we leave room for God's wrath to be satisfied either by the blood of Jesus on the behalf of that person or in themselves at the end of all things. Because of the cross and the final judgment, we can respond to evil with blessing, with grace, rather than seeking revenge. So how might we live out this expression of sincere love today? Well, when I talk about the human desire for revenge, there may be a very clear face in your mind. Some of us don't find it hard to see how this teaching connects to our lives. That person who cheated you, who hurt you, who denied you what they should have given you, who took something from you. The call here is to entrust vengeance to the Lord and to show them grace. To not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Sincere love in our relationships with one another and sincere love when we desire revenge. These are high calls. These are high aspirations for the life of discipleship. Of course they are, right? If they're going to stand out from the patterns of this world. Patterns are patterns for a reason. It's easy to drift into apathy instead of love for one another. It's easy to indulge the desire for revenge. But God doesn't call us to do anything he doesn't empower us for. Do you remember how Paul started this chapter of Romans in verse 1? In view of God's mercies. In view of God's mercies. God's mercy in the cross of Christ gives us the perfect model of entrusting vengeance to the Lord, following the example of the one who cried out, forgive them, Lord, they do not know what they are doing. God's mercy in the gospel ensures that one day perfect justice will be done, that every person will be held to account for their sins, either themselves or by having those sins crucified with Christ. God's mercy in sending his spirit empowers us for radically other-oriented love, to be set on fire by the spirit to serve and love one another in powerful and enduring ways. 
So here's the point. You can live this life. You can live out this call to sincere love. You can be, we can be the kind of not conforming to the world, transformed people and community which we are called to be here in Romans 12. And we must be. So let me pray that we would. God, we thank you that you show such agape, such sincere love for us on the cross and in sending your spirit that you show us and empower us to live it out. Do that for us, Lord. Give us what we need to live transformed lives of love for others. For those of us who battle apathy, Give us deep wells of fiery love for those around us. For those of us who battle the desire for revenge, help us to know that perfect justice is found in you and to respond to evil with good. God, give us love which is sincere, love which is like yours. And we pray it for your glory. Amen.